This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Technology as a force for social good. I'm Tanya Hall, and joining me is Yancey Strickler, entrepreneur and author and co-founder of Kickstarter. Welcome, Yancey. Yeah, thanks for having me. So... For those of people who may not know who you are, um, they've certainly heard of uh, Kickstarter before, hopefully. Give us a brief summary of your life journey and what brought you to, to founding Kickstarter. Um, well, I'm, uh, I grew up in Southwest Virginia on a farm um, and uh, always dreamed of the wider world. Um, and when I was 21, moved to New York City and became a music critic. And for about 10 years, wrote record reviews of, for, you know, bands for the Village Voice, Ben, Pitchfork, places like that. And then it was while I was doing that that I met um, Perry Chen, who had had the idea for Kickstarter and for crowdfunding a few years before. And so, uh, you know, at the time I worked, I had a day job at a company that had .com in its name, eMusic, which was the first digital music subscription service. Uh, and so I think that made me one of the most technical people Perry had met in, in 2005 to try to make this idea of Kickstarter real. And about a year after that, we, we met Charles Adler, uh, who became co-founder. And, you know, Kickstarter was like, a, for me, a, yeah, like kind of like a 14-year journey from, from that point. You know, in 2009, Kickstarter launched. Um, and we were always focused just on helping creative projects come to life. We saw that crowdfunding could be used for charities or, you know, business funding or uh, investment, all these kinds of things. But we were very focused on this specific use case of creative projects because that's the world that we came from. And, you know, none of, we didn't intend to be entrepreneurs. And so we came at it as outsiders. And so this ended up helping us steer Kickstarter in a different direction, you know, choosing to become a public benefit corporation, um, trying to trying to always keep the size of the team as small as possible so that we could have a lot of flexibility and have more of a, I don't know, familial spirit. Um, and just a lot of ways that Kickstarter is so different from a lot of the tech that we're used to. And that was something that we always took great pride in. Um, and so then, I was the CEO my last three plus years at Kickstarter and then a little over two years ago, stepped down and spent a year and a half writing a book that just came out recently called This Could Be Our Future, A Manifesto for a More Generous World. And this is a book that basically argues that we're in a moment where we're ready to enter into a post-economic period of life. Um, where financial value will no longer be the dominant form of value, uh, but it will have competition from other kinds of values that technology will help us define and that we can learn to protect and grow. And so I'm sort of making the case for what I think is the next 30 years of, of progress that I, I think we have the potential to achieve. You call yourself a Luddite, yet you started a technology-based company to help creative people, as you mentioned, use technology to generate capital. I mean, isn't that a contradiction? Well, I don't, I, I don't know if I've, if I am a Luddite, I don't know if I said that I, I was being exaggerative, probably. Um, 
I mean, I think I have an interesting mix of being both progressive and conservative, you know, in the sense that like, I, I root for certain kinds of change, but I also really, uh, I try to respect why things are the way we are also like, you know, there's just, there's, um, there's a push and pull of change that I, I, I feel like I can see both sides of, and that I, I try to view compassionately and empathically. Uh, technology, technology. I'm still like I'm. I'm very optimistic about technology. Uh, like the internet, the promise of the internet was that we could explore all these different models of human interaction and different ways that businesses could run, how we organize, all these sorts of things. A lot of that has been very true, um, but when it comes to like business models and what we think a, a a corporate internet entity should be, you know, we've settled really quickly on there being just one model of like the ad driven data extracting, um, you know, platforms. And we seem to settle on that as the model really quickly. And I look at Kickstarter's example of the, of the more uh, utopian and idealistic internet of like, what can we do if we really open it up? What can we do if we make things more egalitarian? Um, and, the internet still absolutely has that potential. Um, right now, the amount, all the capital flowing into it is pulling the internet platforms into one model of how the world can be. Um, so that, that is not encouraging. Um, but all the possibilities remain. And, um, and so I still hold out that optimism and, and think that, you know, the emotions of the last few years have made us look at tech very differently than we were not that long ago, but the tech is the same, you know, it has all the same potentials. It's, 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 it's us that needs to evolve. You say that value is more important than profit. Explain that. Well, I think that, you know, the world was once operated according to moral values, moral principles of right and wrong, um, which was like produced, like gave a clear sense of what justice meant, things like that. Also made it hard to decide things. Like you might need Aristotle debating someone for two weeks to figure something out. Um, so over time, moral values got replaced by uh, financial value, which is like you can imagine a rational expression of goodness. Like moral values are sort of conceptual idea expressions of, of goodness or quality, but a price is like a, is a rational expression of that. And so the last 50 years of, of American life and really the world has been the decline of moral values as our guiding light and the growth of financial value as our guiding light. And really financial value has replaced moral values in terms of what we think of as good decisions. Like the only way a decision will get the green light today is if it will produce a good return on investment, a good ROI. That's a litmus test. That tells us that all of our decisions are financially driven because we cannot imagine investing financial value to create non-financial value like that we would say what's the roi and that's where conversations stop that's where conversations get emotional um, so if we say if we just talk about profits then to me we're talking about one tiny slice of the spectrum of value and that maximizing that creates a you know a, a huge giant spike in your chart but everything else is declining at the same time so Profit is part of a spectrum of value, but it does not define value. So what's wrong with trying to optimize profit as a primary goal? I mean, after all, isn't the range of available choices a direct result of profit? I mean, if we sub-optimize profit, don't we limit our ability to choose how much social good we can actually foster? Well, I mean, the idea that like 
find, I mean, there's certainly a, a strong argument to be made that, you know, profits are what allow companies to raise wages, what allow companies to invest in new product lines, improve the, the products of what they do. That's if companies did those things. They don't really do those things so much anymore. I mean, workers haven't really gotten a raise in 40 years adjusted for inflation. So if that was what was being happening, I would say, yes, by all means. Um, so the idea that amassing financial value and that is the best way for other values to flourish just like hasn't been proven out in the last multiple decades of behavior. Um, so I, I don't think that's the case. What I think is that companies that only prioritize financial value are, um, I think are more vulnerable in the long run than companies that balance forms of value. So the, the example I give us, I think about New York City um, where I used to live. And when I moved to New York in the early, in 2000, there were record stores everywhere. Then Napster happens, digital music happens, and record stores start closing down. The first record stores to go out of business are HMV, Virgin, like the big box chains, which are just stores that happen to carry music, right? They are profit maximizing businesses that music is the commodity that they sell. Um, which are the record stores that lasted the longest? It was other music, which focused on indie music, Generation Records, which focuses on punk, you know, Academy Music, which focuses on classical and jazz. It's places that, yes, they need to be sustainable. They pay their employees, all those things. But there is another reason why they exist that makes them meaningful. They create meaning. And so when economic disruptions happen or when people, when their choices change for reasons of convenience, like a financial consideration has no meaning to anyone except yourself, but meaning, meaning the, the non-financial value you provide is still a reason to care about you. And I think is a more durable good. It's also a harder thing to protect. Um, but I, I think it's the companies that manage to balance those things that are both profit-making and meaning-making and thus can exist for the longest amount of time. And to me, that is the goal of a company is to be alive as long as possible. It's not to lead your market. I mean, may, maybe in a certain moment, but like market leaders can change. They don't change often, but they can change. But really it's about survival and, and, and survival creates meaning and that creates opportunities for things to evolve in all kinds of ways. So I think it's, it's that, that's just, that's the more durable way to exist. Um, and yeah. So what advice would you offer technical and innovation professionals on merging profit and social good into this new coming decade? Um, well, I think that the greatest potential for new forms of growth is in defining new values. Um, so in, in, in my book, This Could Be Our Future, I write about how Adele used an algorithm that would sort her fans by their loyalty to her and basically use that as a, as a, as a metric to, to distribute concert tickets, as a way to distribute concert, concert tickets, not in an economic fashion, but in like a, a loyalty communal fashion. And that this was made possible by an algorithm, by measurement, by data, by tools. Um, and I, I think that that is a, a sign of where things are gonna go, um, which is um, to imagine new forms of value that we are protecting, that we're optimizing for, that we're defining, um, that we're expanding our dashboard from just financial value to probably limit of CO2 emissions, probably something representing the social cohesiveness we feel, probably something relating to whether people feel they have purpose in their lives, uh, but trying to define and tease out what those things are and, and teach, 
teach your own company, teach organizations, teach society at large what it means to work towards those things. Um, but I think we're at a point in history where the technological, tech, technological tools are there. Um, there's a, enough crises of capitalism happening at this moment that we don't know how to sort of traditionally price in things like climate, rising suicide rates, the de decline of life expectancy in the United States. Like capitalism's not solving those things, right? Not profit, making as much money as possible is not solving those things. This is the best stock market year ever and suicides are up, right? So it's like, what, what metric are we supposed to pay attention to? And um, so I think for talented technologists, I think it's about not using your skills to help an existing financial maximizing company to cement their market position, it's to create entirely new frontiers of value and to think about the person sitting in your chair a generation from now and to imagine how, it, how you can make it possible for it to be less difficult for them to make a good decision that has a, a, a wider view of value. Like, it's not gonna be easy. It's not gonna be easy, but can we make it less difficult by building language, building the tools, uh, and creating these new forms of measurements? So, that, that I think is the most impactful path that anyone can embark on at this moment. And, um, and yeah, and it, it's, it's entirely possible. Yancy Strickler, thank you so much for not just coming on to, to share your insights with us, but for being brave enough to start Kickstarter and continuing to inspire people uh, through your message. Uh, if somebody wants to connect with you, what's the best way they can do that? Yeah, please. I, I'm at Y Strickler, my first uh, initial last name, ystrickler.com. There's a contact button. And my book is called This Could Be Our Future, a Manifesto for a More Generous World. Thanks, Yancy. That was Yancy Strickler, co-founder of Kickstarter, entrepreneur, and like you said, author of This Could Be Our Future, a Manifesto for a More Generous World. I recommend checking it out. And if you guys want to find more of my interviews, you can do that right here or go to tanyahall.net. Thanks for watching.